You're listening to Trek FM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. Hey, everyone. I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. these books i thought i'd take some light reading in case i got bored welcome to tfm's books and comic show for star trek i am one of the hosts here matthew rushing and so excited that back with me is the one the only the not so scaly bruce gibson yeah i use a lot of uh cream like you know uh Mm -hmm. moisturizer moisturizer, so i'm not too Mm. scaly and it's uh, it's Mm. it's working yeah it is I, I was going to say, you know, and we I'm, we should be sponsored by Olay because that you you know your skin is looking wonderfully radiant and yeah, absolutely not scaly. So, um, no dinosaur like uh, you know skin for you. Mm-mm, no, and my teeth are nice and sharp and clean. Oh, nice, nice. Uh, did you get that sh- uh, teeth sharpener from from uh, Quark? Yeah, actually, I did. Uh... I just rubbed his ears and he gave me one. Well, well, <laughs> well. Uh, before we go too far down that road, um, we're excited to be here at Literary Treks. We're going to be continuing here uh, with the Typhon Pack series, which has been uh, really fun to get into. And uh, then the next show we'll be doing, I uh, should have Una McCormick coming up with Chris as they talk about the brand new Discovery book. And then we'll be returning to uh, the Lost Years. And then we have another new book that's going to be coming out uh, in the uh, Prime Universe with the TOS crew. But during the movie era with Christopher L. Bennett's book, Living Memory, I believe is what it's called. Yes. So excited to do that. So, so much happening here with Literary Treks. And we're excited to be here. But... We don't have any news today because there aren't any comics or anything to cover. Um, And so we're going to dive into the show in just a second. But just wanted to remind you, of course, that you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you like Literary Treks and what we're doing here, uh, give us a star rating review on Apple Podcasts. Help the show grow. Uh, You can also, of course, find us on Twitter at TrekFM. We're on Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrekFM. There's a listeners-only discussion group you can find called the Babel Conference. You can join and talk to listeners from all over the world with what's going on here on the network. And, of course, you can go over to Trek.fm and see all of the shows we're doing. And maybe you want to send us an email. You go to Trek.fm slash contact. Uh, That's a great place to go. And uh, we do want to say we've got some great associate producers here through Patreon, Greg Rosier and Casey Petit. We really appreciate their support. Uh, of the network and literary tracks to make sure all of the shows keep coming to you. And if you do like what we're doing, you can help make sure that that comes to you each and every week. Kind of a little bit like PBS. If you like the fact that we're not doing commercials here on our shows, um, well, it costs money to do this and we need your help. So go to patreon.com slash trekfm and you can see how you could be part of the team. And in the end, honestly, every little bit helps. We got some great contribution levels and 
We've also got some things that are behind the paywall that it would be worth for you to join in. So again, go to patreon.com slash trekfm and you can see how you can help us out. Uh, Bruce, uh, I don't know. Do uh, you think maybe we should just dive in to seize the fire? I'm ready to dive in, scales and all. So, Bruce, this uh, Typhon Pack series book, uh, all of them are kind of focusing on members of the Typhon Pact. And this one is uh, the book where we are really going to be focusing on the Gorn. And, you know, I always found the Gorn interesting. I was a big fan of dinosaurs as a kid, so it was always fun to see them in TOS. And we only really get that one episode. But... Uh, as a as a series, you know, of course, they came back in Enterprise a little bit, and um, it, it's it's fascinating just to kind of think of them as a race. But this book, we really dig into who they are as a race, how their race kind of has set up their society, and to me, this was really the best part of the book was getting to know the Gorn better, getting to know Gorn. Really? We're going to sing? <laughs> uh, well, no, that's that's the only part I'm going to sing. So You always sing. You're such a good singer. It, well, uh, yeah, I don't know about that. But anyway, um, so I, to me, this was really interesting. And, and, and one of the th- biggest things we find is that the Gorn are in some ways kind of like Kryptonians from like Man of Steel where everybody is born into a specific cast, you know, so you are uh, a part of you know these these main casts like the warrior cast uh the technological class or the political class and then those are broken out into different areas as well so you kind of you know are can be more specialized and to me that was really fascinating to learn you know it's like the last book that we did um rough beast of the empire the one thing we really liked about that book is about the romulan the romulan storyline and yes Mm -hmm. in this book my favorite part is the gorn storyline getting to know the gorn better uh like you sang and just just hearing about the different casts and also that there's different types of gorn just in appearance physical gorn look you know because like you said i mean we've seen in tos the gorn of course the animated series we saw gorn but then the gorn we saw in enterprise look a little different and then there's like the video games and some other things where we've seen gorn that look different and so of course i I think it's even pointed out here it's like the zindi i think it was in this book they mentioned Mm -hmm. it's very similar to that where you have different looking gorn and so you have the different cast and in these casts they all look different from another cast or whatever i found that really to be interesting because that's the thing i love about these books is it gives you more depth into species that we don't get that much detail on in the tv series yeah, I to me that was something that was uh fascinating to see that um the the Gorn species uh, obviously um you you have uh, this this relationship between two Gorn that we have and and look, I'm not even going to try to pronounce the Gorn names in this. We'll get to that. <laughs> I was in a minute, hoping you would cuz I can't. <laughs> that that was. No, I'm not going to do it. But we do have a relationship between two Gorn who have been kind of like star-crossed lovers in the sense that um there is the story set up for the Gorn is that uh, one of their main hatcheries on a planet uh, is destroyed by a basically starburst um, from the local sun in that area. 
and it basically the radiation fries the planet. And so the whole point is that they're and and why they're all the way out where the Titan is in the Beta Quadrant is they're looking for a new place that could become uh, a hatchery and. It's for the warrior cast. So this is obviously very important to them. Um, you know, if they can't find a new hatchery for the warrior cast, they're going to be in some real trouble, especially when it comes to uh, they're going to be feeling more subservient to the the Typhon Pact. They're going to feel uh, weaker as as a society because they don't have this warrior cast. And they, they have to have a very specific setup of the planet in the sense of uh, its... Um, uh, humidity levels and, you know, I mean, it, it has to be a, a very um, specific type of climate. Right. And if they can't find that, then maybe they can somehow kind of terraform to get that. And so they're really worried about this. And so you have these star-crossed lovers and that one of the uh, people was on a ship and that ship survived, that has the last people that survived, um, that cataclysm there at the warrior cast hatchery and they've got some defects because now of radiation poisoning and all this um, but again w- what i'm trying to get to in all of that is that we learned that these two characters they're bonded which made me really wonder is we don't really we have these hatcheries but we didn't really get into as to exactly how bonding between two gorn work and do they then create their own families uh, you know, or is every Gorn just born of a hatchery? Like, are there any Gorn that are born of the relationship then between a couple? Or is every Gorn basically genetically engineered in a hatchery? That's one thing I felt like the book didn't answer, which I was wondering, how does this really work? You know, because that was one thing that uh, we don't quite get any details on yeah that's true that was never really answered i guess i just assumed that it's the hatchery is the only way that they procreate uh but in a lot of ways just thinking about the hatchery made me think of camino and the clones in star wars mm-hmm. and yeah. of course you know not everyone's a clone in that universe you can do it that way or you can create life in the natural way mm-hmm. i would almost assume that Gorn should be able to mate and create children. But I guess if you're trying to create a certain cast on a mass scale, that they almost do this hatchery, like clone like thing, like we saw in star Wars with the Mm -hmm. clone wars. It's like, you want that warrior cast, then you're going to create this hatchery of warrior cast beings Mm -hmm. as opposed to waiting for people to just procreate Mm -hmm. their own life. But you're right. That was never really addressed. Well, and, and maybe wonder. I don't know if you ever saw the show Krypton that was on Sci-Fi Channel. Yes. And you know they had the whole thing where you can bond. You know you can be together, uh, and then the the genetics from each person in the bonding get taken to create a life. You know, so they don't birth people, but they. You know, so I wonder if it has something to do with that. That you know then your bonding and your genetic material comes together to create some somebody in the hatchery, you know? So again, it was one of those things where I found this really fascinating. And in the end, I just wanted more information about this, not because I'm really into Gorn mating habits, but I just, it, it was interesting to see how the society actually worked 
and I, I felt like we got some good information, but there it wasn't complete yet. And so I almost just wish the whole book had just been about the Gorn. Well, now that I'm thinking about it, didn't the one Gorn captain wanted to mate with that woman? Yes, yes. So they can't because wasn't it that they wanted to mate so that they could create an offspring that I guess that they would clone in a sense? See, and that's what I couldn't figure out because, look, I know that his desire, this this captain of this ship, and he was one of the people who had escaped from the hatchery uh, and had the radiation poison and had kind of been driven almost insane by it, wanted to create a new warrior cast, right. a better warrior cast. But there wasn't a sense in that I ever got from the book of exactly how that was going to happen because they were still looking to create a new hatchery planet. Mm -hmm. And so it seemed as though somehow maybe it's combined, but it wasn't necessarily that, and I never got the feeling that it was going to come down to them two and their quote-unquote off-screen. But the other Captain Gorn, didn't he want to meet with the other guy's girlfriend and she that's one reason why she was against him and trying to leave because she he wanted to mate with her to create his own cast of warriors i mm. think i remember her her wanting to get away from him and not touch her and she then vi- eventually right. got yeah. to the titan yeah i no i i that's where the details i feel like of this get a little fuzzy as it again, how to how it all works. Um, but I, I mean, I thought it was interesting too that what we learned then is that each of the casts of Gorn, their hatchery planets, need to have a specific climate and and uh, be a specific temperature and all these type of things to to create this. And I, I thought it was fascinating that um, because of that. The specifics for the warrior cast are are so specific that there are very few planets like this. And in fact, they're in danger of never finding another planet like this because this one was basically so special. And so this is one of the reasons why the Gorn running across this terraforming platform in the Beta Quadrant have them so intrigued. Because, you know, obviously they believe this can help create and remake a world just like the one they lost. So for them, they found the Gorn Holy Grail. Yeah, this is like a Genesis device. Yes. So yeah, it could terraform. And the thing about it is this one special planet that got destroyed for all case and anyway, the radiation that affected it, that... That was a special warrior cast. There's other warrior casts, but they're not as strong. They're as weak. So they're worried about the Gorn getting weak and having not so strong warrior cast. This is the ultimate warrior cast that has been destroyed that they need to start over again. And yes, that planet needs to have that certain environment for them to recreate that type of cast. And so this machine that could redo the planet into this environment that is needed is like the Genesis device, meaning it can not just create life, but can destroy the life that could be on the planet. 
And of course, the Titan is very interested in this too, because what they just went through with the Borg destroying worlds, they could use this device to bring new life to those worlds. So there's interest on the Gorn side and the Federation side for this device. And do you keep the device and use it because it's dangerous at the same time, or do you destroy it? Yeah, I I like that you bring that up, this whole question of, and obviously they name it after a couple of Hindu gods, you know, creation and destruction. And this idea of what do we do with this type of technology? And obviously, this is one of the first times I feel like since Genesis, we're playing with this idea. Um, And like you said, I really love is that from both sides, from Starfleet to... And the Gorn, you have a reason for wanting this type of power. You know, uh, specifically, we we keep referring to here Deneva being destroyed and the idea of being able to remake Deneva and other worlds that have suffered from the boring invasion to remake them into worlds that people could live on again much more quick, quickly than, you know, normal terraforming efforts uh, in Starfleet would be able to do. And so the question of power and and how and why we use it was really interesting in this book. And I do feel like if there's one detriment to the book, I don't feel like we actually really wrestle with this enough until the very end of the book when what happens with Tuvok and him, you know, he has mind melded with this this um with this structure um it's actually a structure that's almost like a living structure mm-hmm. um and has a kind of almost a consciousness to it and um both him and uh white blue had kind of tried to meld with it technologically and then mind meld with it with Tuvok and he's left with the ability he could basically reconstruct this mm-hmm. And so the question of what do I do with this power? Do do I bring it to light to Starfleet? Do I bring it to light so that we can create more of these machines so that we could remake these worlds? Or do I just let this die because it's too dangerous? And I was disappointed that that question, which I felt like the entire book would have been interesting to wrestle with, is left as a cliffhanger for the very end. Yeah, and that kind of reminds me of the last book, too. Like, I didn't feel like everything was resolved like I wanted things to be. It just kind of lets things out there open-ended at the end. And I don't recall, but when we get to other books, maybe it helps to resolve those things. But, I mean, to your point, you know, what Tuvok has gone through, it really is that decision of now that we have the technology, the understanding to build this device— should we do that? It could help to reinvigorate the planets that we lost and bring new life to them. But then the dangerous part of this is someone could come and use this as a weapon. And so do you even tell anybody that you have this knowledge? So that would be an interesting play to play out in the book, at least maybe in the last third of the book or something, and not save it to the very end. But those questions do come out up throughout the book. But it's more of what do we do with the existing device? Do we somehow turn it off or do we destroy it? And we don't want it to be used on this planet because there's life on this planet and it'll destroy that life. So do we transport away from this planet into somewhere else? 
And again, it gets back to, but you know, it's a weapon and the Typhon pack troops are on their way. And it's, it, yeah, it would have played, uh, it would have been interesting if that, that situation with Tuvok would have come up because then it would be really playing the idea of how does he deal with this? What does he do next? How does mm-hmm. he struggle with not just those decisions, but all the, the information that's in his head? How does he handle right. all that? And we don't really get that. It's just, it, we're informed of it at the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I, I think that it's a good question and it it is one that, you know, I understand when you have a book series and it's ongoing, you know, you don't have to answer every question because you are, you know, laying seeds for things to continue to get picked up. But I will say that this book and the previous book that we just covered, which Rough Beast of Empire, I do think both of these kind of suffer from the fact that there's not enough resolution in the book itself. Um, and it feels a little bit too open-ended. And that is a detriment to just being able to, I would say, just pick these books up and enjoy them on their own without having a lot of other meta information. You know, um, the authors try to do their best to give you what you need in the books, but I would say this book and the last one kind of suffer from not really being as user-friendly, reader-friendly. Um, in that sense. And part of that is that we're not almost telling complete stories. Um, there's enough of this story that wraps up, but, you know, and and part of that, too, is like, so we have this whole storyline with the other undercover Starfleet um, where they go on the isolation suits because they want to save something of the society on this planet that might be destroyed by the Gorn uh, activating this device. And in some ways, it kind of reminded me of Avatar with their hollow technology that they're using with their isolation suits and everything. And, of course, we've seen a little bit of that um, in Insurrection where they were just actually cloaked, basically. Um, but I, what did you think of this part of the story? Because I, of all parts of this book, I found this the most disappointing because I didn't feel like enough really happened to legitimize us spending this much time on this part of the story. I mean, yeah, this wasn't my favorite part of the story, but I felt like it needed to be dealt with because there is this alien race on this planet that is going to be destroyed if this device is used and to just talk about them and not really know anything about them would be a little disappointing. So to me, it makes sense that they go down and they investigate them, especially since the fact that they have matter antimatter technology, which could be used for warp travel, but they've decided not to use it for that. So the question of the prime directive comes up, well, they have the warp technology. So can we make first contact with them? Mm-hmm. But even though they're not in the space, they're not using it for travel. And so they were saying the prime directive isn't really that specific of saying that, well, you have to be able to travel with warp technology. It just says they have to have invented warp technology. So I thought that part was a little interesting. But when they're dealing with this race of beings that kind of look like human, like frog looking uh, aliens, um, there wasn't really a whole lot to it except for they were just not willing to really do anything. They weren't going to leave the planet. They saw this device in the air. They didn't think much of it. 
and they they were just not going to do anything. But yeah, there really isn't much more to it than that. Uh, if anything, what I enjoyed most about is just the exchanges between Vale and Troy. I kind of like how they kind of, in some ways, don't they're trying not to step on each other's toes. And that's it's just really interesting because one of the things that I kind of kind of came away from in this book was is that there is so much going on and yet nothing happening. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about that as we we're because you brought it up, and I feel like is there just too much going on in this book or or is it something where maybe some things need to be restructured to um, make the story more streamlined so we could maybe do what we were talking about where we're spending more time on that really important question with do we use this technology? Do we not use this technology? Um, so because I, I feel like to me, that's the answer with this question. There's so much going on, but not enough is actually really happening that is driving forward the main plot of everything with the Gorn, the Typhon Pact, as well as the Titan. Um, and this major question of, you know, the idea of, of planets that we could bring back to life. Um, what do you think? Am, am I off base or, or is there just enough going on or what do you think? I didn't feel like there was too much going on. I never felt that way. Uh, but I'm picking up on a pattern as we're going through these Typhon Pack books where it, to me, the story is about the members of the Typhon Pack, the one member. So the previous book we reviewed was about the Romulans. This one's about the Gorn. And then the first book that we did, Zero Sum Game, is about the Breen. And those are always the more interesting parts of the book to me. Although in Zero Sum Game, I really like Bashir and Ezri Dax working a lot together. I did find that to be interesting. But the best part of the book to me was learning about the Breen. And then the last book was about the Romulans. And the interesting part of this book to me is just finding out more about the Gorn. But it's never really about the Typhon Pack. You know, I mean, this story could have been told outside of the Typhon Pack because we never saw the Typhon Pack. You know, oh, they're on right. their way. They're coming. But that's it. Like, you could have just said that's a fleet of Gorn ships coming in for reinforcement. Right. And it really had nothing to do with the Typhon Pack. The last book kind of did. It had some thing, But again, the focus was on the Romulans. You could have restructured that story. It had nothing to do with the Typhon Pack. And same with the one before. So it feels to me as if the books are saying, hey, let's focus on each member of the Typhon Pack, get to know them better. Oh, and then... We'll sprinkle a little open-ended storyline to one of the main Star Trek characters in the book that we can play with later. And that's what they feel like to me. So there really isn't that much about the, ty- the, the Titan crew in this until we get to the end. There's something that's left open-ended on two of the members, ty- uh, on uh, Tuvok and White Blue. But outside of that, there really isn't that much going on. To me, it's really more about... We're putting the Gorn in this situation so we can learn more about them. I think I think you just put your finger on that, though. With with everything you're just saying, it, it, I think what it is is that this is plot first and character second. Yes. And that is always a detriment to any storyline. And I would say 
that regardless of whether I loved how the storyline played out uh, with the the character specifically of like Ezri and, and Bashir in Zero Sum Game, the rest of that story was all character first. And then the plot worked into what was going with the characters, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that was fantastic. I think these last two books, it has legitimately just been all about these plot movements and then characters kind of get dragged along with what's happening with the plot instead of the other way around. Yes. And I I think that's that's what's made me feeling on I guess frustrated with with both of these last two books really because you mentioned it, you know, nothing happens with the Titan crew in this story. Like in the sense that we don't really learn anything about them. There isn't an, uh, a progression for their stories, really. Um, you know, we allude to the fact that, you know, T- Tuvok is still dealing with the loss of their son and everything. Um, but there isn't anything in there. There's there's no growth for Troy or Riker or any of the characters here. Um and it's disappointing. I, I think um, it, it it you when you pick up a book that has Riker's face on it and Tuvok's face on it, you would expect to kind of learn something about those characters, and we just don't really do that. No, but then again, uh, a lot of Star Trek is that way. I mean, you just you watch an episode, and you know the the characters are still the characters. I mean, I've read so many TOS novels, and it's still. Uh, this is true. Yeah, yeah, Kirk, Spock, and McCoy at the very end. We didn't really learn that much about mm-hmm. them, but you know, it, the, but that's what makes a really good book, though, is if you do something mm-hmm. like that with the characters, because it really stood out to me too. Because when I finished this book, and I did enjoy the book, but when I finished this book, I went straight to Star Trek Discovery: Wonderlands by Una McCormick, the one that's we're going to be discussing here on the show soon with Una. The thing about it is that is all character. I mean, I, I, I started reading it and I was really enjoying it because I'm learning so much about Michael Burnham and the growth of her character and what she's going through. And I was like, wow, I'm invested in her, but I didn't feel invested in any character in this book. Right. You know, I was invested yeah. in the Gorn. I was very interested in mm-hmm. how the Gorn played out. And I knew that they probably weren't going to destroy the planet with this machine, but right. you know, that would have been interesting if they did. But uh, again, uh, it was just really learning about the Gorn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think, you know, you're absolutely right. It, it is definitely a frustration. And I, I think, you know, for me personally, that's one of the reasons why I've always gravitated towards Deep Space Nine for Star Trek. You know, even in the normal everyday episodes, right? You know, the quote unquote everyday episode, you're learning something about the characters that you didn't know before. You know, and they're using that um, as a way to progress their storylines. Uh, I think Enterprise actually did a pretty good job of that as well, even in its first few seasons, like where you would have those abilities to connect between the different characters um, and growth. You'd, you'd always learn something in one of the episodes uh, about one of the characters that kind of moved you along. So, and that's so important when we're doing these type of stories. So, I did want to ask you one thing. So one of the things that we do kind of get here, and it's a thematic element that was interesting, was this idea of diversity 
you know, obviously the Titan is the most diverse crew, but we we kind of have this question of is there a point to which diversity goes too far in the sense that like people are not ready to accept that. And and that really comes with our interaction between the Starfleet crew and the Gorn themselves. And that the Gorn specifically would not be comfortable with um, a mammal crew um, or a mostly mammal crew. They just wouldn't be comfortable with that. And they couldn't make themselves necessarily comfortable with that without maybe years of acclimation. And so uh, to me, that was something that was really interesting, I felt, in this book. And I almost would have liked maybe even more of that as a discussion because I, I think it is a really interesting question, especially since most of the Gorn have this thought process of what the Federation is like, which is basically kind of what the Klingons say in uh, Star Trek Six, which is, is a homo sapiens only club. And what, what they've kind of realized because of their interactions is that's not necessarily the case, which was really neat. Like we're seeing that obviously f- the Federation is is advanced um, and is is much different than what people think from the outside. I almost I just wanted, I think, more of that because I think that's a really cool theme to be discussing, especially with Titan. I like how they beam over that one Gorn guy. <laughs> because since we're not going to pronounce names, but uh, actually, I think his name is uh, Gogresh something. Was it him? Yeah, something, something. along. No, it wasn't lines. that yeah. guy. It was another one. Anyway, it doesn't matter. One of these <laughs> something like that. But anyway, when he beams over, he uh, he's just amazed that because what they did is when they bring him into the ship. They he freaks out when he sees mammals like you know mm-hmm. uh, Nurse Agawa and Riker coming in with Troy and he like kind of passes out again, and then this time they're like okay we should only have reptilian type of members of the crew in here of course with Doctor Ree who was there to begin with, and he wakes up and he sees all these reptiles and he's and they all look a little different some look kind of gorn and some don't and that just kind of confuses him but it's like okay there's these aren't all mammals. And I thought it was interesting how the Gorn now in the 24th century has no idea that the Federation is made up of all these different species that they're not all just these right. mammals. But then at the same time, there's something where Riker's talking about that seems like every species has another species that creates fear in them that they're afraid of. And it's just natural for mm-hmm. humans to be afraid of reptiles and lizard type creatures and stuff. And that's a prejudice. And that's, and that's something that they have to logically tell themselves not to freak out about. So I thought that was interesting. That it goes both ways. The reptiles are afraid of the mammals and the mammals are afraid of the reptiles. Yeah. And I think it, it makes for, I, and, and one of the things that I really liked was, them talking about that idea of that we as beings in general, um, regardless of, of what type of being we are, that we do have an innate reaction. Right. You know, we do have an innate response. Um, and it's not necessarily tied to some kind of like racism, right? It's just this like innate thing that happens. And it would, it, and it definitely makes sense, obviously, with Star Trek, you know, when you do have all of these type of beings that from completely different types of worlds and 
it's not necessarily um anything about other it's it's basically just this natural response you know it, it is something that is natural and and then um and what really overcomes that then is the beautiful thing that we we kind of see play out in the in the book which is overcoming that by uh getting to know one another having conversations everything that the federation is about right like let's get to know one another and 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 therefore then we can overcome those those natural responses with intellectual responses because yes my first inclination may be this but now i know you now we know one another and that knowledge trumps those things and i think that's really beautiful that knowledge can actually help us um overcome those type of of issues and i i really wished that the book had really dove even further into this because i think this is the type of theme um that titan specifically can really excel in and as we're talking through this i'm thinking more and more about dr Ree and how he really could have been utilized quite a bit in this. This could have been a re-story because it could have been where they're finding the crew of Titans finding out that the Gorn are not so accepting of mammals. And so they kind of have re then take over almost as like in a command position and put him on the bridge. And Riker's almost like talking in his ear and telling him what to do and putting Ree in a command situation, seeing how a doctor is trying to accommodate with trying to help this situation and from a command standpoint. You could have made this whole character story of Ree by kind of putting him in an awkward situation and trying to deal with other beings that look like him but aren't him. You know, it's like, I'm not a Gorn, mm-hmm. so don't expect me to be a Gorn. But I can help mm-hmm. you maybe with this, you know, something like that would have been interesting. I I think you just nailed one of my earlier questions. Like, is there too much going on or should we have a restructuring or whatever? I think you're absolutely right. This should have been the book where we dove into Dr. Ree and we learned his history and that this struggle and, and everything about it. Absolutely. I think you that's perfect, Bruce. I mean, it, and in one of these, in, in that sense, I feel like that's where this this book specifically, you needed to, uh, it needed a re-editing. You know, it, it needed a somebody to come in and basically say what you just said. Let's focus. What's the focus for this, for the Titan crew? And where are we keying in on character? That's it. Perfect. So, because the other thing that well, really, I really appreciated about this book is, you know, we talked a lot about the fact of what we learned about the Gorn and how they need their hatchery planets to be a specific way. And what we learn here is that it doesn't have to be that way. They can evolve. Mm-hmm. And so this whole idea of evolving and when to evolve. And what I, I thought was really interesting is the Gorn are being forced to adapt. But the adaption could have happened years ago. Like, centuries ago like they could have always adapted and so what it really came down to the question of is when to know uh when you should adapt how you should adapt and when to hold on to specific traditions really becomes important 
And and again, this is one of those places where it's like it's a great theme. It kind of gets played out a little bit at the end of the book. But I wish the entire book had been building into this much more. So it was a much stronger theme throughout the entire thing. Yeah, it's making me wonder more and more if the approach to these books was let's just focus on the different groups of the Typhon pack and not make this so much about our main characters. Because it does seem to be the theme mm-hmm. going through each one of these books. And then, you know, because even the last book, it's like, okay, I'm interested in what happened to Sis- what's going to happen to Cisco next. You know, now that he's, you know, left his wife behind and his child behind and he's now the captain of the Robinson and he seems to be coming to terms with some things about himself. Mm-hmm. What next? And now it's this, you know, what's next with Tuvok? What's next with White Blue? But you don't really get to that till the end of the book. It seems again it's all right. focused on the other stuff. So um yeah, I I don't know. Let's let's get to the next Typhon book now because I want to know what <laughs> I know I've read these before, but I don't remember them all in that mm-hmm. detail. Yeah, and it's interesting because um, just in my memory, uh, I remember Paths of Disharmony being very focused, um, and it's specifically because we're dealing with the Andorians and an issue that's happening with them, which was, I I remember, being fantastic. And so, yeah, I I think you're—I think one of the things, like, so just uh, maybe before we kind of get to ratings— I think to kind of sum up some of the things that we've been talking about, I feel like that if you had keyed in on what are the thematic elements that that play across from the Titan crew to the Gorn, and then use Dr. Ree as our avatar for the Titan crew, as in who we were going to be seeing the story through his eyes, the interactions with the Gorn mainly through his eyes, um, and then using this as an opportunity to really get to know his story, almost in the same way as like an an enterprise where you have like dear doctor, you know, and you use that as the opportunity yes. to really get to know flocks. Yep, that's what we should have made this story. This story should have been Ree's story, and then that gives us an a great, interesting juxtaposition then with the Gorn and everything. I think if you've done those things. And then that gives you kind of a restructuring here in the book um, and a a restructuring of storylines. If it had been those things, I think this book could have been super successful because it has some great ideas here. But the problem is, is that what we've talked about idea wise is none of them really play out or pay off even by the end of the book. Yeah, it. I, I don't want to really like tell authors what they should do or what I would do necessarily. I'm just thinking like brainstorming some ideas, but I, I feel as if if you're going to do a book like this and if you want to get something more about our main characters, give them something more to do or learn something more to them, find parallels to the story. So the story is the Gorn trying to have this hatchery for their eggs. It's to produce more Gorn. It's to produce life. And it wouldn't have been interesting that maybe this is the point that we see Riker and Troy revisiting having another child. And they're trying to decide if they should bring another child into this world. You know, something to that effect. So you have that storyline going on with the Gorn storyline, and both are about creating life. Mm. I man, I no, I do. I think that's good. And and look, I, it, 
I don't think Bru- neither Bruce or I are, are sitting here trying to be jerks and to say, oh, you should do this. I think part of this is obviously Bruce and I have spent years reading a lot of Star Trek books. And so I think we do have quite a bit of experience in that, you know, um, and and so there have been obviously Star Trek books that are more successful than others. And so I think for both of us, this one hasn't been quite as successful as we feel like it could have been. And in talking about this, that's what makes it fun, right? You know, like we want to talk through the things that we feel like um, that we liked and and be honest about the things we didn't like and, and exactly why that is. And so we never want to just tear something down um, to be mean. We also want to be, uh, I think constructively critical, uh, and so for us, that's been the process for I think honestly the last two books. And so I am really interested, Bruce, in in what you end up rating. Seize the fire. Well, it's funny because sometimes you know we get on these shows and we'll start picking something apart, and then I'm like, "What?" Well, but I really did like it. <laughs> you know, it's like, I mean, sure, we didn't maybe get much character growth out of the Titan crew, but I enjoyed did. I did enjoy seeing the Titan crew and, and revisiting with them again. Uh, again, the Gorn, that, that was the thing I really enjoyed. I mean, I enjoyed this book because I like to see more of the Gorn. We don't really get that many Gorn stories, and we learned a lot about the caste system and the different species of Gorn and the whole hatchery thing and how they produce their different castes and that there's different planets with different hatcheries of eggs and I just found the whole thing really to be interesting uh, when it comes to the Gorn. So that's the, I, I walked away from this as like reading a Gorn encyclopedia in a sense that, that was uh, displayed to me in a story form. So I enjoyed it. Um, and I'm curious to see what happens to Tuvok and, and White Blue later, which I've read the books before, but I don't remember all the details. So uh, yeah, I would say that out of a hatchery of a hundred eggs there's probably about, you know, a couple dozen that are cracked and broke. The rest are fine. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think, you know, I think the last book I gave two out of five. And I think I would give this one two and a half out of five because it is definitely um, a little bit. I would say it's like half a good book. You know, there's there's like half of this that. I'm like, yes, yes. So especially, and, and again, like you said, it's the Gorn stuff that I'm super interested in and, and want to continue to know more about and I wish it was even more fleshed out. So um, yeah, it, it just, in the end, I think it it just failed for me in the sense of being a good Star Trek book. And part of what I come to a Star Trek book for is really getting the opportunity to dig into the characters to which um, I love. And so hopefully, uh, as we get into Paths of Disharmony, we'll get more of that. Uh, of course, we've got uh, Wonderlands coming up with Una and then a uh, flag full of stars and then so much more coming to you. So that'll be really fun. And uh, yeah, we'll see what uh, comes next. Yeah. So the next book that we're going to get to in the Typhon pack, I'm really interested because like you said, it focuses on the Andorians. And I do recall really liking that one. And I think we learn a lot about the Andorians. So that that should be interesting. Well, Bruce, 
as always, regardless of whether we love the book or we don't love the book, it is always so much fun to get a chance to talk about uh, Star Trek books and comics with you. And um, yeah, I'm really excited for what we do have coming up this year because we really do have a packed schedule and it's it's just great to be able to bring people more episodes of Literary Treks. But if people want to catch up with you and see what else you've got going on, where can they find you? You can find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. That's Admiral with the underline Rex. I'm also on Instagram at Admiral Rex, but I don't really post much there, but I am in there. And uh, you can find me on Positively Trek with Dan Gunther, talking about books, comics, episodes, movies, collecting, what I don't know, anything Star Trek related. We talk about it there. And then I'm also occasionally on the Star Wars Report podcast, and we talk about Star Wars on there, surprisingly enough, right? That's shocking. And you could find me uh, all over the place on social media under the name Matt Rushing 2 um, here in the network, of course, doing The Orb with Chris Jones, where we talk about Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Uh, you can also find me doing The 602 Club, which is our general geek show, talking about all the fandoms outside Star Trek that we love. Plus, uh, in that same feed, you can find Snyder Cuts with John Mills and I talking about all the works of Zack Snyder that he's directed. You can also find me over on the Nerd Party Network. I have two shows over there. One is called Owl Post. I did with Drea Kaufman. We wrapped up the entire Harry Potter series. We did that one chapter at a time. And then I'm doing aggressive negotiations over there with John Mills as we talk about Star Wars each and every week. But everyone, thank you so much for joining us. And until next time, live long and read on. What do you call that light reading? To each his own, number one.